TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of News You Can Use right here on WTIC News Talk 1080. We hope everybody's out there safe and happy and gearing up for the big holiday season. Um, if you can find anything to buy, I guess that's the big question. Uh, my name is Ann Baldwin, the host of this program, and I'm so excited to have back again one of our regular guests on this program, um, also a star of television and radio, <laughs> Patrice McCarthy, who's the Deputy Director and General Counsel for the Connecticut Association of Boards of Education, also known as CABE. Patrice, thanks for being on the program. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction, Anne. Yes, well, we always know that when your mom is listening, we got to really, you know, talk it up and let her know that you're going to be on and, and talking about great things. And, and Patrice, um, we'll get to the recent Cabe Caps convention that was held uh, down at the Mystic Marriott. We'll get to that in a little bit. But one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, you know, I've, I've been working with you folks at Cabe for quite a long time now. And I remember in the beginning... Uh, not a lot of people even knew what school boards were or what they did or what the hierarchy was. And fast forward to today, um, a lot of school boards here in Connecticut and across the country are really in the spotlight. Um, are you at CABE over there? Are you enjoying the attention that the boards of education are getting today? Well, I think it's an opportunity for boards to engage more with their parent community and with the community at large. And that's an opportunity that many of them have relished during this pandemic. When meetings were available in a virtual format, they actually saw more engagement by the public with their meetings. I think there still is a real challenge in many communities that the public does not necessarily know what a school board does, what their responsibilities are, and also what their responsibilities are not. Mm -hmm. There's a general perception that when an individual is elected to the Board of Education, they have tremendous individual power. And actually, they have no authority until they come together as a body. And when a board uh, convenes, they have to make sure that they're following state statutes, executive orders. So they can't make decisions that are in conflict with those laws. And does it have to be when, let's say, for example, a board votes on a particular issue is it majority rules? Generally, except there are certain motions that if they're following Robert's rules uh, would require a two-thirds vote. But generally, it's a majority vote. So some of these things and, and some of these issues, let's just take the mask mandate thing, for example. I know I was talking to Susan Raff over at Channel 3, a longtime well-known reporter and I, who I very much respect in the state. And she had mentioned that she attended a school board meeting um, and Governor Lamont was there. 
And she says she's never seen anything like it. The disrespect. And don't you think that a lot of that comes with the fact that, let's just, from my opinion, you're not going to show up at a school board meeting unless you're passionate about something, unless you're angry about something, and you don't necessarily know what the rules are, what the etiquette of a school board meeting is, and that's when things can kind of get out of hand. That's right. Clearly, some of these issues invoke great passion in people. Uh, we've always had those issues. When a district is considering whether they'll restructure and redistrict their elementary schools or consolidate two high schools or change the start time for high school, those are also issues that evoked passion. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, that articulating what the procedures are, what the protocols are, is something that board chair people have gotten very good about doing at the beginning of every meeting. So the public understands what the opportunity for public comment is, that it is not a debate, and that the board is there to listen to comments from the public, but they are not going to uh, respond in the moment, and they're not going to engage in a dialogue. They're there to primarily to conduct the business of the board. You know, and I've I've been to, uh, for example, in my in my town, I went to a board meeting once, and it's a it's a different process because you're used to when you talk to people, having them respond, and it's really unusual when you stand up in front of a microphone and you're looking at I don't know six, eight, ten people, however many people are in in front of you, um, and they don't respond. They're just looking at you and shaking their head and taking notes. And then that's it. it. It is kind of a weird process, but that's the way. And I was I was almost angry, like, why aren't you talking to me? Why aren't you responding? Why am I not getting reaction from you? So it really does do people well to kind of figure out what the protocol is and what you can and can't do before you attend, whether it's a board meeting or really any other municipal meeting, um, kind of know what the protocol is so that you don't feel like I felt. That's right. And also, it's important to remember that boards do make sure that their staff follows up when individual members of the public raise issues that the staff uh, can address. They will follow up with them either outside that meeting or the next day. Okay. And, you know, I also thought it was interesting to learn that the Board of Education is, it's not the superintendent who's really in charge of the district. The superintendent works for the Board of Education. That's true, but the superintendent is the CEO of the district, and so he is—he or she is the professional with expertise in education, from basic familiarity with education law, and it's important for boards of education to take guidance from their educational expert, their educational leader. Right. It has to go. It has to go both ways. But I know there. In some cases, a public perception that the superintendent, you know, rules the roost, if you will, and makes all the decisions, and it really is the school board that, that oversees those decisions, correct? That, that's right, and it's, it's the school board that establishes policy, mm-hmm. and that gives direction to the administration and the rest of the staff on a day-to-day basis. Right. And, and go back, going back to what you said before, Patrice, is that these are elected officials. So, you know, folks say, well, what control do we have or what involvement can we have? There's a couple of things. A, you can attend or at least listen in or go to your school board meetings so that you know what the issues are, especially if you have a student that's in that district. And then the other thing is you can also get out and vote. When it's time for your local elections, get out there and vote. And part of that vote is for your board of education members. Absolutely. Engagement in the uh, civic process is very important, and that's why that's one of the things that our educators attempt to instill in students as they're going through school, that you have a voice, you Mm -hmm. have a role, 
and you need to take advantage of it. Right. And especially now, the, everybody's voice really does need to count. So, you know, to sit there and I see it and I've done it to throw your hands up and say, well, what can we do about it anyway? Um, you know, if you have that attitude, nothing's going to change. So you've got to try to get involved, whether you're a grandparent or a parent or just involved in, in the, the health and quality of the education in your community. There's really no excuse not to get involved. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit. Um, recently, the CABE CAPS convention was held, which is held every year, and it looked a little bit different this year. It wasn't quite as crowded, right? Because of COVID, you're still being very precautious, right? Exactly. We were delighted to be able to host an in-person annual conference, but we also wanted to make sure that our guests were both comfortable as well as safe and healthy. So we did cap our registration at about half our normal capacity, and we uh, had a series of protocols where attendees, including our exhibitors and our presenters, attested that they had either been vaccinated or had received a negative test. Um, And that's very similar to what's happening in all of our public schools. Mm -hmm. So people were very grateful that they were able to be together and that they were able to do that safely. Right. So this year's theme was for the uh, CAPS convention was the future, civility, diversity, and student voice. That seems like a lot of ground to cover in a couple of days. Well, it it certainly was. And actually this year, again, for safety reasons, we held just a one-day conference rather than a day and a half. But we were able to provide some wonderful opportunities for discussion We kicked off the convention with a panel on civility and divisive times, and we had the superintendent and board chair from Cheshire, who have been very helpful in providing strategies to districts and lessons that they have learned, and I was able to facilitate that discussion with them. And we had some great questions and comments from the audience about experiences that they have had in maintaining a civil environment in their local board meetings. So so talk a little bit about that because, um, you know, you talked about questions from your audience and sharing experiences, and that's also because you've got like-minded people doing kind of the same things in different parts of the state, but yet the issues are all relevant. The issues are very much the same, if not just a little bit different. So sharing, if you will, best practices in civility, um, what do you think was the big nugget that came out of that one? I think the important thing was setting the tone at at your public meetings for the board chair to be very clear at the beginning of the meeting in terms of uh, what the protocols are for public comment, but also making sure that members of the board model civility in their conversations and their discussions with each other, because that does set the, the tone for not just that meeting, but really for the climate and culture in the whole school district. Absolutely. And, you know, these are elected officials and they might not come from the same, you know, political party. And and there oftentimes is divisiveness amongst the members themselves. So you're right to put together that 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 united front, if you will, in front of people, because if it's a mess, I always say this, if it's a mess within your board, it's going to just come across as a mess to your public. And then you've really got a mess on your hands. It, it undermines the right. public school system if you are not able to conduct your business uh, in a manner that instills trust and confidence. And learning how to express one's views and listen to view, the views of others that may be different from your own and come to a decision that's in the best interest of the students in the district is just very, very important. 
And that's what I feel a lot of people lose sight of. This is all happening for one reason. I mean, the real goal here in the end is doing what's best for the education of the students in the district. And oftentimes, I believe we put our own personal opinions and personal thoughts into that. And, and we forget that why, why you have a volunteer board of education sitting up there getting, you know, hammered and having to make these decisions. Um, these are volunteers. These are people that really, essentially, if you talk to each and every one of them, I'm, I'm pretty sure their, their motive is doing what's best for the education of the kids in the community, right? I, absolutely. All right. Well, go ahead. Sorry. Sometimes people come to the board with one issue that they're particularly passionate about, but they quickly come to learn that there's a multitude of decisions that a board of education has to make. And understanding what those issues are is, is a very important part of the learning experience for new board members. Yes. Another one of the breakout sessions um, that you had, too, was preparing students to be successful in the 21st century. Um, what was really the, the overarching topic in that particular session? Well, I think looking at communication strategies, looking at the use of technology, certainly our students have, have been forced to uh, learn using technology in a number of districts over the past 18 months. Um, and just knowing what the tools are and also recognizing that as our global economy continues to expand, the skills that are important in order to work successfully with people that may have very different backgrounds and experiences than some of the students in our Connecticut schools. So I think there you're touching on the diversity issue, right? Absolutely. So, so when you, you know, depending on the district that you're in, you might have a lot of that or you might have, I know, for example, in New Britain, I think they have six or seven different students with seven or so different languages, um, you know, with English as a second language. And, you know, a lot of people may say, oh, that's not a good situation, but actually it is because you're being exposed to folks, like you just said, with these diverse backgrounds. And isn't that what the future of our economy and of the workforce is going to be once we get out of there and get out into the working world? It, it definitely will be the case. And especially as we do more work um, in a, a remote environment, uh, it, it is now very common for people to be working on a daily basis with colleagues that are literally living around the world. So are we are we reaching those goals here in Connecticut uh, overall when you had all these educational leaders in, in one spot for one day? Um, how do you think people are feeling about our education educational system here? I, I think that they are optimistic. They are um, looking to the future to continue to make improvements, particularly with the availability over the next three years of additional federal resources. And I think they're committed to the fact that we need to continue to improve. We still have a significant achievement gap in Connecticut. And they are, however, optimistic about the potential to address those issues and to, to continue to narrow that gap and support all of our students. Right, and and that's a big job. We just talked about whether you know English is your second language. To give each individual student, you know, the tools that they need to succeed uh, is not an easy task. And I hats off to everybody out there who who works towards that goal every day. Um, Secretary Miguel Cordona was also in attendance, although virtually he was live. 
Um, how was that having having your hometown former education commissioner joining your uh, Cabe Caps convention? It it was really terrific. He very much regretted that he was not able to be with us in person. That had been his plan. But the president called a cabinet meeting, and he really didn't feel he could say no to that. <laughs> but he was live with us, um, and he talked about how Connecticut has been a model for safely providing in-person education and that he has, has taken the good work that he actually helped uh, promote in Connecticut when the pandemic first began, and he was education commissioner, and is using that as a model around the country. And he also, interestingly enough, talked about civility and how that is now more important than ever before. And that was wonderful because that very much connected to our opening session as well as one of the convention themes. He also talked about social and emotional learning and, and incorporating that into the curriculum. What does that mean? That is the strategies that we are using to help our students be healthy, not just their physical health, but their mental health, their emotional well-being, so that they can benefit from their educational experience. Because we have many studies that show us that when students are suffering from trauma, they are not able to benefit from even the best instruction that's being offered to them. So making sure that they, in school, have a safe environment, that they know how to reach out for help uh, when they need help, whether it be academic or mental health support. And that now the challenge is to make sure that we have enough professionals available to students so that when they recognize the need to access that help, they're able to do so. Sounds like a plan. I hope it can be done. I, I think that there is a real commitment uh, and a real recognition that this is a significant significant need for our students, and that the pandemic has really put a spotlight on the social-emotional needs of, of students. We know that when they were isolated, mm. in many cases, uh, that was not good for their emotional well-being. And so now as they're back in the school environment on a full-time basis, we need to address those needs. Right. It was it was such an adjustment, and we still don't know where we're at. We still don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if we're going to have to go back to remote learning at some point. And, you know, you talk about a ping-pong game. You know, I really feel badly for these these students. There's just so much uncertainty, and, you know, not everybody can sit in front of a computer and learn. So there's been so many challenges. Because of those challenges and with the remote learning, have we fallen behind as a state? Well, I think certainly... We are a leader in how we have been able to support our students throughout this pandemic. We have had more students have the opportunity to be in school on a regular basis than most other states had. And so I think it'll be, we'll need to reflect uh, as we return to more routine assessments and see where some of those gaps are. Yeah, because I don't think we really even know yet, truly, the whole impact of that. No, it's really too early. It is too early. Um, One of the things I wanted to touch upon, I know this is a little bit out of your arena, but um, I understand that the free and reduced lunches were offered to all students across the state um, throughout them coming back to in-person learning, but that is about to come to a halt. Um, What do you think the impact is going to be on that? Here we have what 
I think is called an unfunded mandate. These school nutrition um, folks have to pay for the free and reduced lunch. They get federal dollars. But do you think that that's going to be a problem? Well, I think it remains to be seen whether there will be continued federal support to provide um, those free meals for all students. Uh, and I know that in, in some districts they had been doing that even pre-pandemic because they had so many students that were eligible mm-hmm. for free and reduced price lunch that they simply provided it to every student. So I think that's an, another area of concern that uh, d- definitely does have a price tag and will be something that we talk to our federal delegation about as well as an issue when the legislature convenes in February. Well, it sounds like these federal dollars are kind of holding up the fort, if you will. They are an important component of being able to uh, provide additional support to our students and staff. And what we have to be cautious about is we do know that this is a three-year federal program. What we hope is that we will learn some lessons using those funds about what is particularly impactful for students and student success, and that that will then be uh, the evidence we need in order to get continued support for some of those initiatives. Right, because it's all it's all result-based, right? It's all survey-based. It's all got to be documented and then see here's People why. People want to see outcomes. People want to see outcomes and that, the, and that the money is being spent and it's being spent well and for the right reason. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left, believe it or not. Again, we're talking with Patrice McCarthy, who is the Deputy Director and General Counsel for the Connecticut Association of Boards of Education. So they are the mothership, if you will, uh, for most of the boards of education across the state of Connecticut, offering professional development um, input. I know you're very, very involved, as others are in your office, with legislative issues that are going on um, up at the state capitol. So anything else that you want to leave our listeners with, Patrice, that I didn't ask you about? Well, one of the highlights of our convention was the opportunity to present the CABE Friend of Public Education Award to the State Department of Education and Department of Public Health staff team that has held Tuesday morning webinars every week since August of 2020 to convey to superintendents, board members, principals, school nurses, public health directors, the latest information about protocols and procedures that work to keep our students safe and healthy for in-school learning. And it was just a wonderful opportunity to honor that joint effort and really an unprecedented um, award to, to be given to two state agencies. And it's wonderful because those staff team members, uh, now the Commissioner of Education repeatedly refers to them as the award-winning team. <laughs> so they, they truly are, and they've been a great partner in making sure that we can do the best we can for our students despite the public health challenges. Well, and what a great opportunity for, like you said, all different folks, whether it's from the school nurses, you know, to board members and superintendents, to really know what the latest data is, what the latest things and findings are, and like you said, safety measures. And that can't be an easy feat, gathering all that information on a weekly basis and setting up a call with all those individuals. Uh, I think that's an award that was well-earned and well-deserved. I agree. It really was. So that went, again, that was a public education award, and it went to whom? To the folks at uh, DPH and? And SDE. Wow. 
So I bet they were thrilled to get some recognition for their hard work because there's a lot of folks out there that don't get that for all the hard work that they do, right? That's right. So you think we're looking towards a bright future? Um, I really do, and and that's the way uh, Secretary Cardona ended his comments. He said that he believes that the best days are ahead for public education. Well, I hope he's right, and I hope he's right, and I know with good leadership and uh, parental involvement, which I always harp on, um, you got to be involved in your kid's education. It can't be everybody else's fault. If you don't play a role in that, then, you know, that's that's your fault. So I think that's another message that I wanted to pass along. Well, Patrice McCarthy, I hope you enjoy all these holidays and the holiday season. And again, it's been a pleasure um, having you on the program to give us a real good look inside public education here in Connecticut. It's always good to talk to you, Anne. Thank you, Patrice. And to all board members out there, uh, Board of Education members, thank you very much for what you do, because I'm sure you don't hear that enough either. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Again, thank you to Patrice McCarthy over at CABE, and thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in to this edition of News You Can Use, right here on WTIC News Talk 1080. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to tunein.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.